Hi everyone, welcome to the Sacred Musings podcast with me, Phil Saker. It's episode 41 today, it's the 30th of June, and today we are thinking about progressivism, the progressive progressives, and we're also thinking about abortion and having a reflection from the book of Romans in the Bible. So welcome to the podcast everyone today. We are continuing to think a little bit about rebuilding the government, particularly thinking about progressivism today. Uh, last week we were thinking about you know, moving beyond left and right and I think this is just a, uh, an, another, another um, way of looking at that really, uh, progressivism, but we'll get onto that in a moment. Just before we get going... Um, I, I like to just start with, um, with any links and things that I found interesting. The only thing that I wanted to mention today, apart from what I'm going to talk about in a second, is um, the documentary Groomed, How Schools Sexualize Your Children. And this is um, something which has been produced by uh, Lawrence Fox and Reclaim the Media. Uh, I think I, I watched it yesterday and I think it's uh, you know, a good documentary. Uh, I do feel like you know that they are... A lot of parents don't really understand what is happening and that's maybe because some of the things which they're talking about haven't reached local schools yet. You know, it is kind of there, it's happening, we can see it, but it's still not widespread, I think, quite in the way that parents might necessarily find out about. Um, certainly in towns like like this where I'm recording you know a small um, well not not that small a town but you know it's not the kind of a place at the moment which is like a metropolitan liberal kind of a place but nonetheless I think these are coming and I think it's well worth being up to speed with what's happening so if you're a parent or you know any any parents with children at school I think it's well worth watching that just to to know what is coming and you know that we need to be we need to be standing up for our our children's um, education and what what they're being taught basically um, so that's groomed by reclaim the media and I'll put the link to that down below but yes the thing that I wanted to talk about um, was particularly talking about abortion now this has been in the news over the last uh, week because I think on the day that I published the podcast last week just later that day uh, Roe versus Wade was overturned in America and those of you who don't know what that is uh, Roe versus Wade was a legal case in America I think in the early 1970s which basically gave uh, women every woman the right to have an abortion in the first um, trimester and that was a constitutional thing so it said that as a constitutional matter then that a woman would have the right to an abortion that meant every woman in america would have the right because it was um, obviously being the constitution it applied to the whole of america and it's been hugely controversial in the states and the reaction to roe versus wade being overturned I think has been astonishing um, I mean I knew that people uh, would be upset about it but I didn't realize just quite how bad it was so for example um, Archbishop Cranmer wrote about this on his blog the the other day that churches have been desecrated and pro-life offices firebombed in the wake of Roe versus Wade reversal um, 
on some churches and other sort of pro-life organisations that had this inscription people have graffitied saying, if abortion is not safe, then neither are you. Now, what on earth would cause this extreme kind of reaction? That's what I've been puzzling over. Because I think abortion is clearly, I mean, it's clearly an issue that people disagree about. But this seems, I mean, firebombing places, that seem, that's just incredible. That's extreme. It reminds me, actually, of back in the 90s when the animal rights activists would, um, you know, hurt and even kill people you know, for testing on animals. And it just seems so, you know, topsy-turvy the way that they were they were going about it. So what is going on here? Even people who I I like and respect are massively sold into to abortion as a woman's rights issue. Um, so Julia Hartley Brewer, for example, who I like, I think has been good when it comes to lockdowns and so on. She was saying on Twitter the other day that you know if um, a woman's rights could be rolled back, it was terrifying. That was the word that she used. It was terrifying. And even there was one Christian, um, or well, uh, someone I I knew from some years ago who I believe is a Christian, goes to church and and what have you, put up on Twitter that, um, you know, know, with a woman, a picture of a woman, a meme, saying, you know, my, my body is not my own and the future is effing terrifying or something like that. I can't remember exactly uh, how it was, but but you know, again, it, it just seems like there's this kind of extreme, I would say, overreaction to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. What on earth is going on here? Think back to the the 1990s. So you know, I go back to when I was in secondary school, the middle of the the 1990s, and I remember in our RE class having a debate about abortion and a debate about the ethics of abortion, whether it was right or wrong. And I remember we were allowed to discuss that and we were allowed to have different opinions about it. Now that wouldn't happen. Now you have to believe that abortion is a woman's right and that it's the only correct opinion that there is now, that you're not allowed, which is which is strange because you know, scientists haven't discovered anything different you know, as far as we know from science, then, you know, at the moment of conception, that the, um, you know, the fetus, it, it, there's a new life created with unique DNA. And yes, it's dependent on the mother, but it is unique, it's distinguishable, and that that's where life begins. And that's what the science says. And it's pretty clear that science says that. And the idea that we can't have any kind of debate about this is very very strange even amongst people who i think would would say we need to debate other issues have been very you know pro abortion on this and about what they see as women's rights so what is going on here you know why why has it come how did we get to the point where we can't even have a debate about this i would say as a christian i think it just shows what our gods are that as many people have observed, that when you stop believing in God, you don't believe in nothing, you believe in anything, and you latch on to things. And I think that's what's happened with abortion. I think that people have latched on 
to abortion. And abortion has sort of become, the, the right to abortion has become a kind of God. That's because sexual freedom is a kind of God. And that's why it seems so completely unreasonable to say, well, if you don't want to have a child, you don't have to sleep with anyone. You know, you can just take personal responsibility for your actions. You know, just um, don't have sex with someone that you're not married to, for example. That's anathema to today's society. And this is because this sexual freedom has become a God. Abortion has supporting that God. So when Roe v. Wade was overturned, that God, that idol was torn down and people were very, very unhappy about it. That's what I think is happening here. There is a spiritual significance to it. And I think you can see that in the, the overreaction as well, because, you know, you know that expression, methinks he doth protest too much. And I think that that's what's happening here. You know, because people, I think people know abortion is wrong in their heart. They know abortion is the killing of a, an innocent human life. They know it's wrong. And that's why they're so desperate to cling on to that right. Because they believe that, you know, that the government's rights, the government bestow these rights, and the government allows us to do what we want to do, even though we know it's wrong. So we will hang on to that right to do what we want to do, even though we actually know in our hearts that it's wrong, because we know that it's wrong. You know, we're trying to convince ourselves, and this extreme reaction is actually trying to trying to convince ourselves as much as anything. It is said that those who, who cannot find a blessing from God will try to find it from men. And I think that's exactly describes what is happening. That, you know, because abortion is not blessed by God, that people are desperate to find that blessing from the government, trying to find that right uh, from the government. And this is why we are seeing pro-life centres firebombed because it is so extreme you know that people want to hold on to these what they perceive as their rights even though they know actually that they are wrong and that's what I think is happening with abortion and I just like to say I think it is encouraging actually that abortion seems to be you know that the Ro Roe v Wade was overturned because it does seem like we are moving in a better direction now that this is perhaps the start of something that some of the things that we've taken for granted over the last 50 or so years actually being being taken back by god and i really hope that this is a a, a wake-up call to the rest of the world and i hope that we in the uk can learn from our brothers and sisters in america who've been fighting this and we too can start to fight this battle uh, about abortion in britain uh, and you know, I, I think we can be encouraged that things are happening. So anyway, um, that was just my little stream of consciousness about abortion. I hope that made sense. Let's now move on to the main section where we're thinking about progressivism. So today we are looking at progressivism. Now, in last week, we were thinking about the difference between the left and the right and, you know, how it's kind of beyond left and right anymore. And I think that's true for progressivism as well. So progressivism is typically associated with the left. However, 
I think that most of the people now in government and in the media and those who've been through higher education and, and the like would be in some sense progressives, even if not sharing all of the same views. So I think the modern Conservative Party, for example, is actually very progressive. So this is not a left and right kind of an issue. Now, I want to look at progressivism itself rather than look at it from any particular angle. And I called it the Regressive Progressives. And I have to say, by the way, I'm claiming that as a band name. If I ever start a band, I'm going to call it the Regressive Progressives because I think it's a good name. And I've called it the Regressive Progressives because uh, for reasons which I hope will become apparent. So what is progressivism? That's the first thing to think about. So this is the definition from the Cambridge Dictionary. A social or political movement that aims to represent the interests of ordinary people through political change and the support of government actions. So it wants to, uh, to represent the interests of ordinary people. It wants to ordinary people to have better lives. And it does that through political change and the support of government actions. So the government introduced measures to help ordinary people live better lives, basically. Now, what are the, um, the, the kind of things that progressivism cares about? Step up Wikipedia. Wikipedia says this about the kind of issues which um, 21st century progressives care about. In the 21st century... Progressives continue to favour public policy which they theorise will reduce or ameliorate the harmful effects of economic inequality as well as systemic discrimination such as institutional racism to advocate for environmentally conscious policies as well as for social safety nets and workers' rights. The unifying theme is to call attention to the negative impacts of current institutions or ways of doing things and to advocate for social progress, i.e. for positive change as defined by any of several standards, such as expansion of democracy, increased egalitarianism in the form of economic and social equality, as well as improved well-being of a population. So Wikipedia is saying that progressives, they want to introduce public policy, so it's a kind of top-down thing um, and that's something that we looked a little bit about last week so let's gloss over that for the moment um, which will and, and they, they concerned about economic inequality so the, the disparity between the rich and the poor uh, systemic discrimination for example the institutional racism the way that institutions discriminate and so on and environmentally conscious policies they care about the environment and so on now how do you define what is a progressive cause or not and here wikipedia is a bit more vague it says positive change as defined by any of several standards such as expansion of democracy and increased egalitarianism so there isn't really a definition of what is progressive and what isn't it's just it's it's defined in this way what appears to to them to be a good thing now, that's a really important thought, and we'll need to hold on to that. We'll come back to that in a moment. So let's think about progress itself. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the, uh, the Narnia books. Have you no idea of progress, of development? I have seen them both in an egg, 
said Caspian. We call it going bad in Narnia. So what C.S. Lewis observed here, um, very cleverly I think, is that progress can be a good or a bad thing. You know, progress is really, I think, well I think progress, the word itself, implies going from something worse to something better. Uh, but actually, you know, just change can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. And you can change things for the better or you can change things for the worst. And whether it's called progress or not, actually, is um, it doesn't really matter. Because sometimes what is called progress can cannot be progress. Um, and, and this is the thing, you know, that progress requires something to progress from and to. You must be able to define what is bad and, and good, what, what's bad about where you are and what the good is that you're moving to. So the question is, what standard do progressives uh, appeal to? When they say they are moving to something better, what standard are they appealing to? And if you flick back to what Wikipedia said, it's one of several standards, for example, increased democracy or equality. But where do those standards come from? Again, let's hold on to that thought for a moment. So what things have progressed in the last, let's say, 100 years? What would might uh, progressives point to as examples of progress over uh, the last 100 years? Uh, so I, I would say, um, I mean, there's probably a list here, but I would just, just off the top of my head, this is what I came up with. Um, feminism and women's rights. Um, so obviously the right for women to have the vote um, but also um, many other things as well. Uh, the sexual revolution, I think, would be seen as an example of progress. Abortion, uh, same-sex marriage and transgender, and also secularism, I've put there as well. So I think all of those things will be held by some progressives. Not necessarily all of them by all progressives. Um, they There are nuances and so on, particularly uh, around transgender, which we'll come on to uh, in a moment. But I think, generally speaking, those things will be held as being progressive values, things which have changed in the last 100 years and changed for the better. So how, then, is progress justified? How do the progressives justify what, they, what they're, they're activists about? Uh, let's look down at a few examples here. So same-sex marriage, uh, for example, from a few years ago. Now, I think this won popular support, particularly when it was branded as equal marriage. I think that was really what won people round in the end. And that's because people believe in equality. So equality is the thing that really drove uh, same-sex marriage in people's minds. Abortion, um, I think a woman's right to choose is, is the thing it's it's a rights issue and you know obviously when um, Roe v Wade was overturned last week that's what everyone was talking about you know it was on the BBC news uh, it was um, uh, a woman's rights to an abortion were being were being withdrawn so it's a rights issue 
abortion is seen as a human right and so people are very upset about about that um, because you know people believe in human rights unless it comes to lockdown in which case it's fine for the government to you know to lock us all up and, and force us to take an experimental vaccine but anyway let's let's not go there at the moment um transgender i think people people think this is progress because it's being kind to people with gender dysphoria and that's often the way that it's it's pitched in that if you don't treat people with gender dysphoria well then you will then you know they'll kill themselves basically so you want to be kind to people with gender dysphoria and secularism uh, it's a i think people see it as a right to be um, free from religion you know a, a freedom of religion the right to be free from it as well um so it's a rights issue so these things, I mean, you could summarise it as, as talking about equality, talking about rights. That's what underpins progress or progressivism. Um, I think there are other examples as well. I'm sure there are more things that, that underpin it. But those are just two that I've drawn out, equality and rights. They seem to be big ones. So where do those values come from? Now, you could say that equality is something which is is not an absolute you know not everything can be equal and uh, rights are of course you know we don't have the right to do absolutely anything but rights exist within a sort of ethical uh, framework or they should do well let me read you what gk chesterton said in his book orthodoxy gk chesterton of course um a uh, very wise man i think and um, he had uh, a lot of foresight he said this the modern world is not evil in some ways the modern world is far too good it is full of wild and wasted virtues when a religious scheme is shattered as christianity was shattered at the reformation it is not merely the vices that are let loose the vices are indeed let loose and they wander and do damage. But the virtues are let loose also, and the virtues wander more wildly, and the virtues do more terrible damage. The modern world is full of the old Christian virtues gone mad. The virtues have gone mad because they have been isolated from each other and are wandering alone. Thus, some scientists care for truth, and their truth is pitiless. Thus, some humanitarians only care for pity, and their pity, I am sorry to say, is often untruthful. Those words are very true, written by um, Chesterton, I think, at the turn of the 20th century. So uh, I think it was over 100 years ago that he wrote that. And I think he is absolutely on the money there. The problem that we see in society is that the virtues like equality, for example, or rights, have become detached from anything which would hold them in, you know, kind of a balance or within a, a bigger picture, if you like. So equality now is being applied in a very um, liberal way to everything, and yet not everything is equal. So this is why, I mean, fortunately, there is some pushback against this. But this is why it's seen as a good and right thing for 
a biological man who identifies as a woman to, to join in with women's sports even though by virtue of having gone through puberty and testosterone and, and you know what have you then the biological man will have a huge physical advantage over women in, in most sports it's seen as a, a good thing and you know fortunately we are beginning to see pushback against that um, but it's because these virtues have gone mad that we don't know how to put the world together now where has this idea come from that that these virtues have gone mad um, let's turn to isaiah berlin isaiah berlin was an oxford professor and a philosopher he was uh, very influential he was a professor at oxford university and if you think about it he was around in i think the 60s and 70s and you think about our current crop of, of politicians, you know, many of them would have been educated at Oxford and where his ideas were kind of popular and, and being taught. So Isaiah Berlin's ideas have been very influential, but perhaps particularly amongst the intelligentsia of today, you know, the, the politicians, the thought leaders and so on. So I think it's worth looking at what he had to say. I'm going to quote you from another um, piece by Mike Ovey called Pluralism, Polytheism and the Gospel. And um, this is taken from the, um, the book, His Collected Writings, which was published um, posthumously. Um, but um, yeah, from Mike Ovey's Collected Writings. Um, so this is what he said. And, and Mike, by the way, he used to talk a lot about Isaiah Berlin and, um, and this, this idea which is called incommensurable pluralism. So let me explain what that means. In his essay, The Pursuit of the Ideal, Berlin outlines the germination and development of what some would see as his central idea, the incommensurability of values. Berlin's point is that there are genuine values and they are, each, uh, and they are genuinely disparate and compete with each other. Berlin speaks of the fact that human goals are many, not all of them commensurable, and in perpetual rivalry with one another. The Berlin point goes further. It is rather this. We have lots of goals, and since there is no real basis for comparison between them, trade-offs are arbitrary. So what Mike says about Berlin is that he... Berlin had this idea that human goals were not comparing. You know, it was like you're comparing apples with oranges. So on the one hand, someone cares about equality, say, and on the other hand, someone cares about justice, for example. Those two things, you, you, you just can't compare them. They are, they are incomparable. They are incommensurable. That was his point. And so what he was advocating for is actually a world where you you can't you know there are just a warring rivalry really between these different values and that any trade-offs that you might make between these values are just arbitrary uh, it just depends on which ones win out and and it, we sort of just need to exist in this plurality of different values so different people will care about different things and we just need to live with this plurality of values and uh, and there's no there's no arbitrating which one is better 
and, you know, to set against the other. So that was Isaiah Berlin's argument. And like I said, he was very influential, and particularly at Oxford University, where a lot of our politicians will have trained. Now, think about Isaiah Berlin's idea, this incommensurable pluralism, this idea that there are different values, but there's no way of putting them together. It's just arbitrary. Does that not lead to exactly the situation that we see today of this kind of um, cognitive dissonance where people are holding different contradictory beliefs in their head at one time? So just to give you a few examples here, abortion is about women's rights, but we don't know what a woman is. That's one. Or it's wrong to try to change someone's sexuality, but their gender is fluid. Now that's another one. Or we must always try to defend the weakest and most vulnerable in society, except the unborn in their mother's womb. And there's another one. It's all of these mutually contradictory ideas which people seem to hold and defend without even thinking logically about about it. This is where we are as a society. It seems to be that people will happily believe different and contradictory things about all of these issues um, because there is no you know big picture, there's no overarching narrative. All of these things have just gone floating off on their own and found uh, and people kind of hold on to them even if they contradict one another there is nothing which holds everything together and this is the question which is you know what does hold everything together so i've got a little uh, diagram here apologies if you're listening just listening on the on the podcast but it's it's quite simple and straightforward which is just this. One God, if you have one God, that will lead to order. If you have many gods or no gods, that will lead ultimately to anarchy. Okay, so one God will lead to order in society. There's one set of rules, there's one vision for society, there is a way of balancing the different values. When it comes to, uh, if you take that idea away, if you if you take away one God, um, so you either have no gods or many gods. And by the way, if you say there are no gods, that will tend towards having many gods. It, it will have the same effect because, um, you know, there's uh, any, you know, if you say there are no gods, then whatever value that you have will become a God effectively. Um, and that's exactly what we've seen. We, let's not go into that right at the moment. So that will lead to anarchy because there is nothing to, to hold everything together. There's nothing to hold the different values together. There is nothing to hold society together. There's no one set of rules or one mind behind it. No common vision for society. That is exactly the problem. If there is one God, then there is one united vision of human progress there is a somewhere that we are going to. 
And we looked at this in the Building a Christian Worldview Consummation um, session. That's part five, if you'd like to, to look at that. It's, uh, if there's one God, that integrates the different virtues because God has given us um, equality and human rights and so on, uh, but given them in, in a whole package. And our job is to kind of find out, the, is to try and get things according to the package if you like, you know, the thing which holds it all together rather than just take the different bits and try and get the things that we want from, from the individual parts. No, we need everything. And it's also universal. It's not just for one uh, society. There was an interesting article a few years ago called uh, Two Cheers for Human Rights, which is talking about how the um, advocates for human rights were acting like evangelists you know, and um, trying to, to get other countries to adopt human rights, almost like the old-fashioned evangelists from the Victorian era. Um, and that was because, uh, of course, there isn't a... If, you, if you're a secularist, you don't believe there is a God. Why would you want... What, why would you, um, what basis would you have for another country adopting human rights? You know, if, if, it's, if there's no God, then human rights are just... A good idea perhaps or an idea amongst many but you know you don't have anything to actually say no you should adopt human rights or there's no ought about it um so you know if there's one god there is one vision not just for our society but for all all societies for all human society um that doesn't eliminate our differences it but it just means that we we can have a common vision for humanity if you like only there being one God makes any of this possible. So I think this is a, I'd just like to finish really with a challenge to progressives. So I'd just like to finish really with a challenge to progressives, which is that can you critique some of the excesses of modern progressivism? Uh, for example, transgender, that seems to be the thing at the moment which is causing a lot of you know people to, to question and think hold on a second you know is it has this gone too far can you critique some of the excesses of progressivism of modern progressivism without undermining them all that we that we looked at now when you when you say no hold on a minute that's gone too far what ground are you standing on and actually are you cutting the ground from under your own feet so I wrote an, a, a blog piece, actually wrote this last week, and I didn't mention it in previous week's um, podcast, which just says, um, which was titled, Gay Rights Led to the Trans Madness. And the point that I was trying to make in that piece is that what happened with gay rights back in the um, sort of 1970s and 80s and so on, up, up till today, paved the way for the transgender madness because it decoupled the fact that our biological reality, a fact of our bodies, with our desires, and it made our desires primary. And actually, someone in the comments made a very good point, which is that to talk about a sexual orientation at all is a step away from reality. You know, because you could say our bodies have an orientation. You know, as a man, I'm oriented towards a woman, and a woman is oriented towards a man sexual relations with a man and and that's how biology works 
you know so by saying actually it's not my my inner orientation is what's important then that it's taking a step away from biology i am pleased by the way and i know i've mentioned this before but uh, there are some people who are beginning to question so um louise perry i mentioned her before and she's recently written a book the case against the sexual revolution and she's also done interviews for example recently with uh, brendan o'neill also with a Chris Williamson on the Modern Wisdom podcast. And she says, you know, is progress always progress? And she's she was saying that the sexual revolution has actually, although it has had some good effects, actually has been quite bad for women as well. So I think she she's an interesting um, person to, to kind of recognise some of this, that progress has not always been progress. So I would recommend looking at what she has to say as well. But again, there is this question that, you know, she wants to kind of hold on to some aspects of progress, in inverted commas, but not others. And um, like abortion, for example, and I would want to say, hold on a second, you know, we need to we need to step back and look at all of this and hold it all up to the light of what we know from the Bible, of what we know uh, from God. So there we go. That's all about that's all about progress. Um, do let me know what you think in the comments below on YouTube or uh, let me know on Telegram or email through sacredmusingspod at gmail.com. But let's uh, move on now and have our final, final thought. So let's finish now with a reflection from Romans chapter 3, uh, continuing on from where we, uh, where we looked at uh, last week. This is Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. And um, I'm reading from the NIV, the New International Version of the Bible, uh, if you'd like to follow along. Um, but do feel free to use any, any version which you find comfortable with. Romans chapter 3 from verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Now, this is one of those passages in Romans which, uh, again, I, I like to, I often you know, joke about this, that there are certain passages which you would never find on a fridge magnet. And these verses here are Paul um, the Apostle has assembled a litany of verses from the Old Testament, which you would never find on a fridge magnet. You know, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no one righteous, not even one. You'd never find that on a fridge magnet, would you? And yet, I think these are really, really important verses. If you recall from the last few weeks, we've been thinking about how the the um, Paul has been talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and the Jewish people of the time were saying, well, we are good people because we have the law, you see. We have the law, so we must be good people as opposed to those sinful Gentiles over there. But Paul's argument has been, no, that's not the case because we ourselves are lawbreakers. We do not, having the law is not keeping the law, as uh, as he says. And um, And then he says, do we have any advantage? And I think he means we as in the Jews. He says, not at all, for we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And he, this litany of quotations that he gives is just shows that in every way that people are touched by, by sin, that it doesn't leave anyone unaffected, that the, the scope is universal. Jew and Gentile alike, of course, in those days, to, to the, the people that Paul was writing to, that was a big division. But you could say that in other ways too. And it says um, that the whole world will be held accountable to God. So it's, it's universal, you know, that it, God holds everyone to the same standards. Now, I think this is, this is a teaching which is really important for, for today. It really made me think, actually, of how so often, you know, the people who are into critical race theory and the like say that only white people can be racist. But actually, what what this says is that all people fall short in all sorts of ways and that we mustn't see one group of people, whether you define that by Jew or Gentile or whether you define that by their skin colour or race or whatever it may be that, you know, no group of people is exempt, that everyone equally falls short. And, you know, white people can be racist, black people can be racist, people from all different races can be racist. That's because we are all sinners. And, you know, we must all be treated with the dignity of, of humanity and be held up to those, to God's standards and know that all of us equally have fallen short. So I think this this doctrine is one of the most important, actually, in the Bible, which is missing today, which is that we are all equally sinners before God. And whichever group you belong to doesn't exempt you from being a sinner. Identity politics plays no part in what Paul is saying. And that's something that really I think I've only just it's only just struck me how good that is, you know, that actually we are all equal before God as as sinners. And the, the final thing that Paul says there is that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And now this is something where I'd just like to make a comment about churches and the way that churches teach, um, well, uh, children and families, and, uh, but just generally, I think. So often, I think churches are so keen to avoid being accused of being legalistic that churches don't teach anything at all about how God wants us to live, about the law. And I think that's wrong. You know, I think God, 
was wise in giving the people, you know, giving his people the law first and then bringing them the gospel in Jesus Christ. And that's because the law helps us to know how we we are sinful. I think a lot of people today do not realise that they're sinners or do not realise if they think perhaps in a vague sense that they're sinners, don't realise specifically how they are sinners. And this is where I think meditating on God's law actually can be helpful because it's not because to make us feel righteous, but actually to make us feel unrighteous. No, it's not to, to give us a pat on the back and say, well, well done, you haven't murdered anyone. But actually to think, well, how have I fallen short of this? How have I not treated people with the respect and dignity that I should have done? How have I not loved others? And this is where I think you know, churches should be more confident in teaching the law, not in terms of, you know, leading, you know, um, being self-righteous. You keep the law well done. That's how God lets you into heaven. Not at all like that. But just in the sense of knowing how God wants us to live and, you know, so that we can meditate on the law and learn what God requires of us so that we know where we fall short so we can come to Jesus and, and repent. So I think this is this passage actually has a lot to say to our society and a lot to say to our church at the moment. And um, this is, I think, the value in going through the book of Romans. And I hope that you're enjoying it as we go through. So let's take a moment now to pray and bring to God all of the things that we've been we've been talking about today. Heavenly Father, as we uh, look back, we do give you thanks for the Roe versus Wade decision. And um, we pray, Lord, for the protection of those who are pro-life in America, that you will protect them from violence and harm and that people in America and across the Western world, and especially I pray for the UK, would come to understand that the um, the fetus there is a life, is a human life, and is worthy of protection, and that is precious, a precious human being that you've made. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us as a as a civilization to uphold the value of life, and we pray, Lord, that when it comes to these uh, progressive values, that you would help us to progress in the right direction, and that where that means we've overstepped the bounds of what is right, that you would bring us back to what is truthful and good. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to rebuild our um, civilization on your values and on your ways. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand this idea that everyone is a sinner before you, that we are all equal. We pray that this idea would become uh, wider in, in society today and that you would help us to and not be divided along uh, which group we belong to and think we are better because of which group we belong to, but instead to come before you in humility, knowing we are sinful and knowing that we are equal before you. So we pray, Lord, that you would bless us and keep us um, in the way that we think, the way that we act, and this coming week, please lead us in your ways, help us to grow in godliness and righteousness, and uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining me today. Don't forget, if you'd like to comment, you can leave a comment on YouTube or from the podcast. You can go on to the Telegram or you can go on to email sacredmusingspod at gmail.com. The links are down below. 
and uh, all of the, the links and things are down below. If you'd like to support me, particularly in a, a financial way, I'm sort of freelance, so I don't get a regular um, wage. So I do appreciate that. You can buy me a coffee and you can do that. The link is down below. And um, yeah, you can either do that one off or kind of um, set up a regular thing as well. So thanks so much, everyone. I really appreciate all of your support in so many ways, your conversation and thoughts and everything. And I hope that you have a great week. I'll see you again soon. God bless.